0: Welcome to Wonders of History, Season 1, Episode 8, Trouble in Paradise, Part 3. For the past several weeks, we've been zoomed in on the Sicilian Wars fought between Carthage and Syracuse over the span of 300 years an often overlooked but nevertheless important part of Carthage's history. This certainly won't be the last episode that touches on the Sicilian Wars, or even Sicily itself, far from it actually, but today we reach a turning point in our narrative, and that's because by the end of today's show, the Magonids, this dominant political dynasty filled with captivating characters that we've been learning about since episode 4, are going to be swept off, the stage of history. Their descendants will of course still be around up until the final days of Carthaginian civilization, but they will no longer steer the ship of state. The storm that is these upcoming Sicilian wars will have unseated them from the helm, and new figures and families will occupy the pages of the few texts I have in front of me that even bother to discuss the grandeur of Carthage. And this isn't even to say anything of Dionysius, the tyrant of Syracuse, who by now is shaping up to be the mortal enemy of the Magonids. He too will find himself ruined by these wars. And of course, we have the innumerable people of Sicily and North Africa, who, although they remain anonymous to us, bore the brunt of suffering and death because of the struggle between the characters of our narrative. It's important that we don't forget them, the masses who were stranded in the riptide of history, so we'll make sure not to gloss over any record of them that we have from this period, no matter how seemingly insignificant. With all that said, let's resume our story. The last episode left off on a bit of a cliffhanger. Dionysius had just besieged Motia, and despite the best efforts of both the Motines and the Carthaginians, had either slaughtered or enslaved most of the inhabitants of the city. Himilcar was once again sailing across the Strait of Sicily, this time followed by perhaps the largest army ever assembled by Carthage so far. Now at the end of last episode, I covered everything we know about the makeup of this army in detail, so I'm just going to get right into the action instead of reiterating. Himilcar's force lands at Panormus, because, you know, that's kind of the only major Punic city on the island with an active harbor given recent events. It had not been a smooth journey. Part of the fleet had been discovered by a Syracusan admiral out on patrol, and a good amount of Carthaginian transports had been sunk in the skirmish that followed. Nevertheless, most of the army made it to shore intact, and Himilcar sprung into action. He marched south to what remained of Motia, and reclaimed it in a symbolic gesture. The garrison that Dionysius had left to watch over the city and its enslaved citizens he crushed, and as the Syracusans were currently preoccupied outside the walls of Segesta, no Greek reinforcements arrived to stop him. Dionysius knew that for the time being, he had to cut his losses. He pulled back his army from Segesta and the countryside of western Sicily and marched back east to Syracuse, where he planned to regroup and resupply before meeting the Carthaginians head-on. Along the way, he tried to make deals with the settlements of the Sicani, who are one of the three ethnic groups native to Sicily. He basically just offered them territory that they were already living on and freedom from Carthaginian tribute and influence, but given that Dionysius and all his Greek ancestors had made a habit of conquering and relocating any natives they encountered, the Sicani weren't very keen on this deal. Very few of them joined him, and a lot of them went so far as to ally themselves with Carthage instead, who despite forcing native cities to pay tribute and submit to their rule, had always governed with a light touch, and had a more mutually beneficial philosophy than the Greeks. Okay, so Dionysius has just retreated back to Syracuse. Where do we expect Himilcar to go next? Well, if you thought Syracuse, you thought wrong. He's thinking a little more outside the box than that. Himilcar heads along the northern coast of Sicily, intent on taking Messina first. That's unforeseen, right? What does Messina, that city right on the very edge of the island, closest to Italy, that we briefly mentioned last episode, have to do with any of this? Well, remember that when we did mention Messina in last episode, we noted that it was of significant strategic importance to Syracuse, because an attack from Messina meant an attack from a second front. The other reason Himilcar was eager to capture the city was to prevent any further use of Italian-Greek mercenaries on Dionysius' part. They had already made up a good chunk of the Syracusan army in the Second Sicilian War. Dionysius had even sent them after Himilcar himself, remember? So now, Himalcar was going to trap Dionysius in his own territory with no reinforcements. Surrounded from the west by the border with Carthaginian Sicily, from the north by Himilcar himself, and from the east by the sea. As Himilcar marches east towards Messina, he passes Himera and a handful of other cities who all supply him with additional troops and provisions. Once he leaves Carthaginian territory, he annexes every settlement along the way, stopping at a small town not far from Messina. Syracuse is slowly but surely getting closed in. So Himilcar sets up a base camp at this settlement, it's called Pelorus, and it's right around the time that Messina gets word of his final destination. Now recall the reason that we even mentioned them in the first place last episode. It was because Dionysius had tried to secure a non-aggression pact with them, right? Well, it turns out that he had done a little better than that because all the Messenan cavalry had joined his gigantic army and were currently hunkered down south in Syracuse. Uh Uh-oh. The elders of Messina knew that this wasn't exactly going to be a good look when the mortal enemy of Dionysius came knocking at their door. Their only options were to fight it out or fly the coop. And for most of the city leaders, the second option was looking pretty good. So it was that the majority of the city fled across the strait into Italy, hoping to return once the war was over. But not all the Massinians committed to this mass exodus. Those that stayed wanted to stand their ground against Himilcar, and before he even had the chance to move his army closer to the city and build a siege camp, they assembled and advanced on Pelorus. Now Himilcar obviously has tons of cavalry and scouts with him, so he's made aware of this attack before the Messinian infantry can get even close to his army. His solution to, let's be frank, this slight inconvenience is just to send them back the way they came, but not with a direct assault. Instead, he sends part of his fleet, which is sailing along the northern coast of Sicily following his army, to storm the beaches of Messina, knowing that they'll likely get there before the Messinians reach Pelorus by land, and if not, then the Messinians will have to choose between continuing their advance or losing their city. Well, Himilcar catches a lucky break, too, because the ships make it to Messina ahead of schedule. Two hundred of them, according to Diodorus Siculus. The seasoned sailors and infantrymen disembark and capture the practically empty city with ease. This, of course, shattered the morale of the Messinian force out in the field, who were, before hauling ass back home, but now had nowhere to go. Some of them just split outright and took refuge in more friendly southern territory. A good amount were either killed in skirmishes with or taken prisoner by the Carthaginians. And just like that, the encirclement of Syracuse was complete. It's safe to say that Dionysius had never been more screwed than he was right then. Himilcar busies himself with the complete destruction of Messina, No longer will it function as a bridge between the Greeks of Sicily and mainland Italy. The dregs of the desperate populace try to swim across the strait, but very few make it to the other side alive. If they were to look behind them as they paddled, they might even see their city being looted and leveled in the distance. Meanwhile, Dionysius was on the move. He wanted to push as far north as he could and find a good position to fortify so he didn't have to fight Himilcar so close to Syracuse. He eventually settled on an old hill fortress known to the locals of the area as Taurus, but unfortunately for him, these locals were ethnically native, part of the Sakeli tribe, and they thought now was a perfect time to stage an uprising and join the Carthaginians. So they levied a makeshift army and drove Dionysius and his men out of the fort and back the way they came. This gave Himilcar plenty of time to begin his march south. Now, originally, he wanted his whole army to move as one. That meant that his fleet would follow his land forces along the southern coast at the same pace, just like they had gone east to Messina. But this plan ran into a little snag. The snag being a volcano. I don't know how many of you have heard about Mount Etna, but it's a volcano in eastern Sicily that's still active to this day, in fact, it's erupted multiple times in the 20th century alone. And as it turns out, it just so happened to erupt as Himalcar was up in Messina, and as he made his way down to Dionysius, his army was slowed down by all the ashes and lava that were strewn throughout the countryside. So rather than adhere to the original plan of keeping army and navy together and having to slow things down to a crawl, giving Dionysius ample time to prepare for siege once more, Himilcar sent orders to the admiral of his fleet, a magnate by the name of Mago, and told him to keep heading south and overwhelm the Greek navy. The new stratagem would be to force a naval battle with Syracuse first, and then defeat Dionysius' army rather than waiting for an all-out engagement on both land and sea. Mago set off, and it wasn't long before he found what he was looking for. Remember earlier when the native Siceli had revolted, driving Dionysius back south that was on that hill fort called Taurus? Well, he ended up retreating to the nearest town, a place called Catana, now the modern-day city of Catania, to lie in wait for the Carthaginians there instead. His army inhabited the city and the nearby coastline, because Katana was situated right on the sea, while all those ships he had constructed years before patrolled the harbor. And this was the reason why the event that we're about to introduce is called the Battle of Katana. This battle, just like Himilcar's initial plan after leaving Messina, didn't unfold as expected though. Mago approaches the city and becomes the first Carthaginian commander so far to see this vast new army that Dionysius had put together in person. And maybe the Syracusans were actually very aware of this whole numerical slash morale advantage that they held, because Diodorus Siculus says that the infantry are all lined up along the coast as Mago approaches, Dionysius' very own plume of peacock feathers to intimidate his foe. Now, ideally, Mago would have just dispatched the Syracusan fleet and then conducted an amphibious invasion of Catana, like he had done earlier that year at Messina, but the scale that the Syracusans were operating on dispelled any notion he had that such a move wouldn't have resulted in defeat. So instead, Mago just positions his fleet in the view of the Syracusan fleet in order to bait them out into an encounter he knows he can get the upper hand in. This battle will be entirely naval in scope. The improvisation was a good call on Mago's part, because sure enough, a vanguard of 30 Syracusan ships are the first to charge the Carthaginian formation, with the rest of the fleet following close behind. The Carthaginians, extremely well-trained and seafaring as they were, managed to weather the storm of this preliminary assault and enveloped the rest of the incoming ships, I won't go into too many details because there's actually going to be an episode all about ancient naval warfare and Carthage's many innovations to the discipline pretty soon, so stay tuned for that. After several hours of brutal fighting though, which was pretty much just Mago's well-trained force tearing through ship after ship, the Syracusan admiral gave the order to retreat. Mago pursued what remained of Dionysius's navy relentlessly, until he had sunk over 100 ships. He even went so far as to order his own ships to sail past fleeing sailors, swimming in a frenzy back to shore, and mow them down with missile fire or stab them with spears. The entire time, Dionysius and his land units had a front row seat to the whole bloody affair, which didn't exactly do wonders for all that morale, to say the least. Dionysius, resigned to the fact now that his last stand could no longer be at Catana, once again headed further south. Mago, on the other hand, got to waltz right into the harbor at Catana and repair his ships, as well as the handful that he and his men managed to board and capture from the enemy during this battle. Without further insight into Carthaginian politics, it's hard to do anything but speculate, but this victory at Catana Probably gave Mego superstar status back home in the eyes of his Sufi. Trust me, this isn't going to be the last time we'll be talking about Mego because he's got a more prestigious career ahead of him than just an admiralship, and the Battle of Katana is probably, at least in part, a reason why. As Mego spent some time repairing his fleet and letting his troops rest after that difficult march through volcanic terrain. Dionysius was having trouble keeping his army of disparate Greeks rallied behind a single strategy. A good amount of his Syracusan countrymen and the Sicilian allies were understandably disgruntled at the prospect of retreating all the way back to Syracuse, not only because it would be shameful, but also because, well, what would happen when Himilcar made it over? They would all be trapped in the city, forced to watch as their walls crumbled and the streets they grew up on were drenched in the blood of their families and friends. Better, this portion of his army thought, not to go gently into that good night, to march back up to Himilcar and engage him on the open field. And who knows, with the favor of the gods, they might even win. When some of the commanders notified Dionysius of the dissent that was spreading through his ranks, he considered the idea and called a council of his advisors, who then reminded him what Himokar and its protege Mago had just done with their fleet at Catana. If the Syracusan army was to march back up north and meet the Carthaginian army, that would just leave plenty of time for Mago's fleet to race down to Syracuse itself and sack the defenseless city. Shameful as it was, defending Syracuse was the only remaining option if Dionysius wanted to get out of this without losing everything. But all of those Sicilian Greeks that were itching for a chance to strike back were furious with this perceived cowardice from the tyrant of Syracuse. Many of them left the army, even, and scattered back to their own towns and cities, further weakening Dionysius's force. Dionysius, whose shoes I really wouldn't care to be in right now, made it back to Syracuse and sent heralds across the sea to mainland Greece, supplicating to the leaders of Sparta and Corinth, who he had allied with in the past, for something, anything, before he and his city succumbed to the Punic menace. And speaking of the Punic menace, by this time, Himalcar was heading directly for Syracuse. While the Carthaginian army stormed into the outer neighborhoods of the city, Mago's fleet staged a grand entrance into the Syracusan harbor by festooning their ships with the spoils of war, gold, silver, luxury goods from Messina, and all the other cities they had conquered. Diodorus Siculus says that by now there were so many ships in Mago's fleet that all the sails would have blocked an onlooker's view of the horizon. And while that sounds like fanciful storytelling, this display of force, must have been quite demoralizing for some average Syracusan dock worker who would have looked up from his hammering only to find himself surrounded by the most powerful navy in the known world. Completely blockaded by sea and surrounded on land, all the inhabitants that could fled to the temporary safety of the walled inner city, while Himilcar proceeded to spend an entire month ransacking the temples, gardens, shops, and houses of the suburbs, as well as gathering timber and other materials to fortify his siege camp. In particular, and this is going to be an important detail in a sec, so don't be too quick to forget it, Himilcar, well, according to Diodorus Siculus at least, raided the temples of Demeter and Persephone, and looted all their treasures. Not only that, but in a sort of symbolic act of vengeance, he allegedly ordered that the tombs of the great families of Syracuse, including that of Gelon, remember, that's the tyrant that defeated Hamilcar at Hemera over a hundred years before all this, be opened up and the bodies desecrated. And if you're wondering how there can be all these undefended suburbs around Syracuse, that's a great question. Though it does often get overshadowed by Athens, Sparta, and Corinth, Syracuse was a gigantic city for this period, the cultural center of Greek Sicily, so this was probably the largest siege Himachar had ever participated in himself, let alone commandeered. He literally builds forts, actual forts, around his walled siege camp and has entire fleets of transport ships going back and forth from Sardinia and other parts of Sicily to supply his men with food. And that's not to mention all the siege engines that would have been under construction to make it easier to assault the great walls of Syracuse. i said this before, but I really wish I could see some of this stuff. Like, wouldn't the scale of it all just blow your mind? The siege persisted for the rest of the year, which is 397, by the way, in case you lost track. All the while, the heralds Dionysius had sent did their jobs on bended knee in foreign courts, as their leader fought to maintain his grip on the starving city. Now, there aren't any accounts you usually get in a desperate siege, like eating rats or stripping bark off trees and stuff, but the Syracusans were resorting to risking their lives by running the blockade with fast-moving ships and raiding merchants and food transports on the open sea. And one time, when a group of hungry citizens pulled this off successfully, Murmurs spread throughout the streets about just how necessary it was to keep resisting. This, combined with the arrival of a Spartan general and his small fleet to assist Syracuse, had many people questioning if Dionysius wasn't just as dangerous as Himilcar. If things had continued down this path of growing dissent and steady pressure from the Carthaginians, Dionysius very likely would have been overthrown. But, as you might be expecting, given Dionysius is still going to be a part of two more Sicilian wars, the path history takes is rarely the obvious one. By now, it was the hottest part of summer, and with summer heat and poor sanitation comes our old friend, Plague. That's right, Himilcar finds himself in another siege that's ravaged by plague. Gotta love the plague, right? It's the most reoccurring side character in this whole story. Every time I encountered another plague outbreak in my research, I almost laughed out loud. And then I remembered the horrors that these diseases were inflicting on the ground. Let me just read to you the description we have of the infested Carthaginian siege camp. It's not pleasant stuff. Quote from Diodorus Siculus. Now the plague first attacked the Libyans, and as many of them perished... At first they buried the dead, but later, both because the multitude of corpses and because those who tended the sick were seized by the plague, no one dared approach the suffering. When even nursing was thus omitted, there was no remedy for the disaster. For by reason of the stench of the unburied and the miasma from the marshes, the plague began with the catarrh, and then came a swelling in the throat. Gradually burning sensations ensued pains in the sinews of the back, and a heavy feeling in the limbs. Then dysentery supervened in pustules upon the open surface of the body. In most cases, this was the course of the disease, but some became mad and totally lost their memory. They circulated through the camp, out of their mind, and struck at anyone they met. In general, as it turned out, Even help by physicians was of no avail, both because of the severity of the disease and the swiftness of the death. For death came on the fifth day or the sixth at the latest, amid such terrible tortures that all looked upon those who had fallen in the war as blessed. In fact, all who watched besides the sick were struck by the plague, and thus the lot of the ill was miserable, since no one was willing to minister to the unfortunate. For not only did any not akin abandon one another, but even brothers were forced to desert brothers, friends to sacrifice friends out of fear for their own lives. End quote. Okay, so hold on a second. Is this seriously the same plague that Carthage has been dealing with for decades now? They really haven't moved past it? Well, not exactly. See, based on the symptoms we are left with, this probably wasn't another typhus outbreak like the one that had killed Hannibal Mago and ravaged North Africa. The source of this plague was more likely A, the extreme heat of that year, and B, another detail that one of the translators of Diodorus Siculus points out in a fascinating little footnote. Remember all those tombs that Himilcar had ordered to be dug up and destroyed? Well, having all those corpses rotting near a crowded siege camp is not exactly scaring plague off, is it? Interesting to think about, but whatever the cause of the plague, its effects were devastating. When you're dealing with that kind of stress, the coordination and a spirit of corps needed to maintain a siege goes out the window. The Syracusans obviously would have noticed this drop in performance, and Dionysius took the opportunity to break out. Mustering as many ships and land units as he could, he marched on the siege camp and rushed the enemy fleet sitting right outside his harbor. He won on both accounts, routing the disorganized Carthaginian ships and capturing those three forts that Himilcar had built on the outskirts of his camp. Whole swaths of Carthaginian soldiers who were caught unawares by the assault were cut down without even putting up a fight. Himilcar had come so far, But now he knew it was over. So he and his advisors, Mago was probably there too, requested an audience with Dionysius to come to terms. And surprisingly enough, Dionysius actually met with him, although he did it in complete secrecy. Perhaps after the retreat of last year, he had gained a healthy respect for the Carthaginians after all. But Dionysius still had to worry about appearances. His people were just as much of a threat to him as Himalcar's army, and if word had got out that he had let Himalcar flee under any circumstances after all the torment Syracuse had just suffered, he would have been ostracized or much, much worse. And even though he was at least sitting at the table with Himalcar, that didn't mean Dionysius' terms for peace weren't going to be harsh the final agreement was that Himilcar had to leave the majority of his army behind. Only he, his staff, and any citizen soldiers of Carthage, of which there were not many, would be allowed to slip away in a portion of the Carthaginian fleet. Carthage would also have to pay Syracuse 300,000 talents as a war indemnity. So that night, Himilcar and what I imagined to be a very sorry-looking group of Carthaginian citizens hopped on 40 triremes and took off. Their flight was noticed by some of their own camp dwellers, who spotted the ships getting farther and farther away, but by then, it was too late to do anything about it. All they could hope for now was mercy from the Greek tidal wave that would soon crash down upon their palisade. But there's a reason I used that metaphor. Because forces of nature are hardly known for their mercy. Earlier on in the night, the native allies of Carthage, the Siceli, who were fighting alongside them after revolting in their own towns, scrambled back to the countryside. The Libyans and Iberians, though, weren't so lucky. They were rounded up in groups as they tried to flee, and most likely killed on the spot or sold into slavery your two best bets for the fate of any political prisoner in the ancient world. We can only imagine the scene at the great harbor of Carthage when Himilcar returned. More heart-wrenching are the scenes that must have played out all over the Libyan countryside, all the weeping families who discovered the fate that had befallen their sons, and the vitriol that rose from their hearts when they learned about how Himilcar had fled rather than die alongside his men. Indeed, Himilcar, nor the magnate reputation, would never recover from this most astounding failure. According to the sources, he retired completely from political life, and spent the rest of his days wandering the streets of Carthage in rags, begging forgiveness from passers-by, and constantly flagellating himself in public. After years of this pitiful existence, he finally chose suicide to bring an end to his shame. And though, as we shall see, there will be a couple of magnan leaders that manage to hold on to power after the defeat at Syracuse, the dynasty is not long for this world. The loss of Himilcar's army was perhaps the most seminal event in Carthaginian history since the defeat at Hamera all the way back in 480. It spurred on the final alterations to the government of Carthage that made it a true republic, including the empowerment of the Council of 104, and the addition of a second suffete in the coming decades. But we'll get all to that in more detail later in the season, because as of right now, the new suffete of Carthage in 396 is Mago, or perhaps we should say Mago II, that up-and-coming magnate admiral of Himilcar's fleet. Now you know why I even bothered to mention him in the first place. But this wasn't exactly good news for Mago, or if it was, it was smothered significantly by the social upheaval that the Sicilian shockwave had sent rippling through the empire of Carthage. Let's remind ourselves that this was probably the largest army ever put together thus far in Carthaginian history, and the only survivors of the expedition were citizens from the city of Carthage itself. If you want a better idea of how demoralizing that is, let's use a modern analogy. Imagine what public opinion would be if during the Vietnam War, The entire U.S. Army was just wiped out in a single stroke in like the Tet Offensive or something, and the only Americans that actually returned home were all the senator's sons from Washington. The outrage would be unfathomable, and justifiably so. That was the situation in the Punic world right now. Tens of thousands of men, from all over Libya and southern Spain, from Gadiz to Utica to Lepkis Magna, had paid the ultimate price in a foreign war. In the eyes of the families of these soldiers, the governors of their towns and villages, and the people at large, this could never be allowed to happen again. So a revolt broke out. It started with pockets of middle-class Libyans in the settlements surrounding Carthage. As is the course of many a revolution, These organizations began to communicate amongst themselves until there were enough opponents of Carthaginian rule to form a motley rebel army. As the Libyan resistance became a coherent force, laborers and even slaves joined their cause, boosting their numbers even further. This all culminated in the march on the countryside of Carthage itself. In particular, the rebels captured the settlement of Tunis which today is the capital of Tunisia, and ironically enough, completely surrounds the ruins of Carthage. The Carthaginians, whose military tradition kind of relied on these people falling in line, did not retaliate immediately, and instead played the waiting game inside the walls. And this actually turned out to be the most prudent course of action. You see, while the non-citizen Libyans may have made up the bulk of the Carthaginian army, They made up practically none of the command structure, so no natural commanders who had the skill set to organize a siege emerged from the rebel forces. Not only that, but this army wasn't exactly made up of veterans either, because, you know, most of the Libyan veterans had just died in Sicily. And to top it all off, Carthage still had access to its harbor, which meant that it had all the food and provisions needed for a siege. Without a solid strategy for getting to the finish line of this resistance, infighting soon broke out among the representatives from different towns, and slowly the Libyans dissipated and returned to their homes, fearful of Carthaginian reinforcements and retaliation. Though it was the closest they ever got to victory over Carthage, this wasn't the end of Libyan resistance, far from it actually. Carthage would spend the next several years dealing with insurrections all throughout western North Africa and Sardinia, too. I guess those Nuragic roots still ran strong. Among the citizens and political elites of the city itself, turbulence and change were also abound. According to Diodorus Siculus, a new religious movement took over in Carthage after Himilcar's shameful return. Apparently, the Kohanim, that's the priests of the city, remember, along with the generally superstitious citizens, believed that all this misfortune had befallen them because of Himalcar's supposed acts of impiety. In particular, Diodorus ascribes the destruction of the temples of Demeter and Persephone back in Syracuse as the cause of the plague, and thus the uprisings throughout the empire. His claim is that in the following years, The Carthaginians erected temples to both Demeter and Persephone and introduced their rites and rituals into their official pantheon. He goes so far as to say that the culturally Greek immigrants living in the city were made kohanim and instructed the Punic peoples in the worship of these new goddesses of agriculture and fertility. Now I hope you can tell by my tone that I'm pretty skeptical of these ideas. It's not that I don't believe the Carthaginians would worship Demeter and Persephone, or that Greek culture had any impact on Carthage. In fact, you'll remember from episode 5 that we actually have good evidence that they did. Plus, Greek architectural and material influences are found everywhere in Punic settlements, so it would be foolish to say that Greek and Punic culture never collided. Hell, we had an entire podcast episode talking about Greco-Punic gods, No, what I take issue with is the idea that Himilcar's impious actions led to the Carthaginians changing their religious institutions in such a concrete manner. I've said this before, but I highly doubt, and so do historians for that matter, Diodorus Siculus's contention that Carthage was constantly wrecking Sicilian Greek temples given their proximity to Greek religion. It seems to me that proximity itself is a better way to explain the shift towards Carthaginian worship of Demeter and Persephone. I think Diodorus might have taken advantage of a trendy cultural movement he heard about in Carthage and used it to legitimize his own pantheon. But hey, historians, after all, are human beings. We can't expect them to be perfectly neutral, especially in an era long before the social sciences. But anyways, unfortunately... That's about as much as I can tell you about Carthaginian domestic history in this period. Now, we should quickly get up to speed with Dionysius, because of course, these Sicilian wars are not over. (laughs) With the Carthaginian presence no longer there to check his power on the island, Dionysius claimed all the Carthaginian winnings up north for himself. He returned to the people of Messina their city, although he did occupy it with several thousand of his own troops. Then, for the next year, he busied himself with a new project, conquering Carthaginian territory on the northwestern coast. This all culminated in 396 BC with his capture of the Punic settlement of Solus, which was farther west than even Himera. Now obviously, this was deep into Carthaginian territory, but let's be realistic here. It's only been a year since Himilcar's defeat at Syracuse, huge swaths of Carthaginian lands are in open uprising, and Carthage barely has an army. For the next few years, they will be in no position to fight back against Syracusan encroachments. But that doesn't mean that their native friends in Sicily were just going to give up. Remember when Himalcar had marched east to Messina and then south, all the while encouraging those Sicelli settlements to revolt against Dionysius? Well, with Greek armies marching through their lands, zekeli insurgent groups were once again coming out of the woodwork. Dionysius fought them for another two years, until something happened that shifted the balance of power out of his favor once more. That something was his decision to besiege the settlement of Toromedium. That name probably doesn't sound too familiar, but believe it or not, we actually spoke of this place earlier in the episode. Recall that when Himokar had ordered the Sicels or the Sikeli to rebel, Dionysius had tried to fortify a hilltop fort called Taurus and compel the Sickels to come up and fight him there. But before he could get too comfortable up there, the Sickels had driven him off, right? It turns out that some of them had continued to occupy whatever structure was up there, because Taurus became a small town that styled itself torum medium. But let's get back to 394 BC, when Dionysius finds himself on the opposite side of the walls, besieging the Sicelli settlement. Without getting into details that are irrelevant to the Carthaginian story, let's just say that Dionysius doesn't seem to have the greatest luck with this place. He's forced to lift his siege after a disastrous night assault, and resumes his march through Sicelli lands, putting out the flames of resistance wherever he can. But this siege was the catalyst for the return of Carthage to the island. Don't forget that the Siceli were loyal allies of Carthage, and the Magonids could not afford any more dishonor being heaped upon their name at this point. Mago, or Mago II, depending on what you want to call him, now the suffete of Carthage and leader of the Magnate clan, had been raising a new army for years now, despite recruitment prospects being a lot more sparse than usual. This time, He relied somewhat, though significantly less, on Libya, and much more on Sardinia, as well as mercenaries from central Italy. By 393 BC, he finally had a force that he could work with, and like many other members of his family before him, he sought revenge against Syracuse. Mago set sail from Carthage with a mere 80,000 soldiers, according to Diodorus Siculus. The days of 300,000 man-magnet armies were over, and if you thought Diodorus was exaggerating with those figures, imagine how small Mago's army might have actually been. Now this feels like the gazillionth time I've talked about a Carthaginian sailing to Syracuse at the head of an invasion force, so these story beats are going to seem familiar. Once again, Dionysius has a panicked moment where he scrambles to assemble as many troops as possible to meet Mago, and once again, Mago finds himself making his way through Siccelli territory in northeastern Sicily. His presence only emboldens the Siccelli resistance, as if it wasn't emboldened enough, and the towns he travels through all officially break free of the Syracusan yoke and declare independence. Rallying those cities that flocked to his banner, he tried to attack Messina, but only succeeded in looting the countryside around it. Dionysius, by that time, had gathered a force to confront Mago and defeated him in a battle at a town called Abacanem. Mago then heads south, continuing this strategy of parleying with the towns he comes across, until everything comes to a head at another settlement called Agirium. Now, I wouldn't even be mentioning this place if it didn't happen to be where Dionysius manages to trap Mago, pinning him between the city and a nearby river, the Croesus. The Agarinaeans refused to aid either side, and then, faced with the prospect of destruction, Mago sent envoys to Dionysius with the goal of working out an official peace treaty. The old borders that were in place before Dionysius' attack on Motia would remain, which meant Carthage would stop encouraging Sakeli rebellions in the northeast and cede that sphere of influence back over to Syracuse. By the end of 393 BC, Mago had gone home, and the Third Sicilian War was finally over. Now, these past few episodes have been all about the political changes in Sicily, from the apocalyptic sieges to the incessant little border squabbles. But with three major Sicilian wars now behind us, it's worth looking at how Sicily has changed socially as well. War has a tendency to displace people, whether it's by siege rebellion or enslavement. To see what I mean, let's take a little trip down memory lane, shall we? The Second Sicilian War, all the way back in the late 400s BC, led to the destruction of Salinas and Acragas and damaged the countryside of both Punic and Greek Sicily. Now remember that after the war, Himokar had allowed the Selinuntines and the Akragites to return and rebuild their cities. In any discussions we've had of the Carthaginian imperial policy, we really hammer home that Carthage was pretty lenient with its territories. You know, though there were some Carthaginian administrators and magistrates in foreign cities like Gadiz, Leptis Magna, and Utica, these places retained a degree of internal autonomy. In Sicily, though, as the contest between Carthage and Syracuse grew ever larger and more brutal, Carthage naturally had more magistrates and armies in the field, and this, of course, translated to more Carthaginian direct control of Sicilian territory over the course of the late 400s and early 300s BC. So, for example, Salinas and the Kragas might have kept some level of autonomy over the affairs of their cities, but these two settlements were now in Carthaginian territory, which meant that their reconstruction was, however indirectly, still being subsidized and overseen by Carthage. Carthaginian historian Richard Miles, remember him, provides a survey of the archaeological site of Salinas and concludes that after the transition to Carthaginian rule, the city underwent a drastic cultural shift, even if those culturally Greek inhabitants were allowed to return, as Diodorus Siculus claims. The city was expanded upon, and in these new streets and neighborhoods, Punic architecture becomes the norm. Shrines and temples for Punic gods like Melkart, Baal-Hamon, and Tinit appear. Even in areas where the Greek roots of the city were intact, these old structures were repurposed. Miles gives the example of a statue of Demeter being worshipped with culturally Punic rituals instead of Greek ones. Archaeologists start to find evidence of burned animal remains, and for those of you that have listened to episode 5, I think you know what that means. Salinas is a great little case study, but Miles also points out that we have these new Punic influences all over the territory that Hannibal Mago and Himilcar Mago conquered. The Carthaginian penchant for colonization was still ever-present because coinage, Punic architecture, and even military installations like forts, towers, and walls became more common throughout west and central Sicily after all these wars. And that's all just from the aftermath of the Second Sicilian War. What can we trace back to the Third? The answer is, well, an entire city. We've actually mentioned it before a few times. By the name of Lilibium. From my understanding, Lilibium, located on the very western coast of Sicily, and known today as Marsala, was always around. But before the Third Sicilian War, it was just a tiny little Punic settlement. So how did this war take Lilybaeum from an inconsequential village to a booming Carthaginian trade hub? The answer lies in Dionysius's horrendous siege of Motia that sparked the conflict in the first place. Motia was the most vital city on the entire island to Carthaginian interests. It was a place where important resources and trade goods could be redirected towards North Africa. It was a beacon of Punic religion and culture and it was a highly strategic harbor, all rolled into one fortified island city. Its destruction not only displaced thousands of people, but also radically altered Carthaginian geopolitics in Sicily. To solve both of these crises, Carthage resettled all the former residents of Motia and probably a plethora of other displaced peoples there, and built a prosperous port city from the ground up throughout the 300s BC. And believe it or not, this isn't the first time Carthage has used colonization to mollify the masses of refugees and displaced peoples that resulted from their wars. After Hannibal Mago's siege of Himera left the city in ruins, Carthage was compelled to construct Thermae Himerae, a new settlement for all the leftover Himerans and Punic settlers that had flocked to formerly Greek Sicily. This is the modern-day Sicilian town of Thermini Emirsi. Don't know if I'm saying that right, but that was my best shot. Then, there was Toromedium, the Sekeli hilltop town that Carthage funded and helped populate. Lilibium, though, because of its newfound significance as Motia 2.0 and its convenient location near the strait between Africa and Sicily, was undoubtedly the most successful Carthaginian colonial venture, and will appear more and more further on in this series. All this is thanks to the tug of war between Dionysius and the Magnids over this one island. Speaking of that whole dynastic conflict, by this point in our story, both sides, especially the Magnids, are starting to run out of steam. Remember when I hinted that neither political opponent would survive this episode? Well now it's time to dive into the downfall of the Magonid clan and their greatest enemy. The Third Sicilian War had ended in 393 BC, remember, and both sides turned inwards to finally focus on domestic affairs for a little while. Without Carthage funding those pesky Siccelli rebels, Dionysius had a much easier time of things. In fact, Diodorus Siculus claims he had time to devote to poetry and the arts. For the next 10 years, he thought outside the box of Sicily, and looked for other lands to conquer in Italy, and even Greece. Tensions between him and the Italian Greeks, especially the city of Regium across the strait, rose to a boiling point, but that is a story for another podcaster to tell. Now over in North Africa, we don't have great evidence for how Mago was spending this whole decade, but it probably involved crushing a lot of dissent and even open rebellion in Libya and Sardinia. In 383 BC, though, yet another crisis in the jewel of the Mediterranean would send him away from home. Dionysius had built an army and was inciting rebellion among Carthaginian cities on their shared border. Carthage tried to resolve the dispute with envoys who, let's face it, probably offered Dionysius a significant bribe if he would just stop making trouble. But Dionysius refused. He had spent a whole decade accruing plenty of wealth for another campaign, and he wasn't going to just give up so easily. Thus, Mago went looking for allies of his own. He settled on the Italian Greeks, many of whom, in the south, had formed a league to defend themselves against the might of Syracuse. We actually didn't cover this because it wasn't super relevant to Carthage, but in the middle of the Third Sicilian War, Dionysius had actually attempted an invasion of Regium, which really didn't sit well with their neighbors. For the upteenth time, the magnates were off to war. There are a couple differences in Mago's approach that we should mention first, however. So first off, he isn't running this campaign all by himself. He's almost an equal partner with these Greek city-states. Second is the makeup of his army. Although he did rely on foreign mercenaries, the bulk of his infantry were citizens of Carthage, probably from the upper to middle classes. I think he had learned his lesson from years of experience in North Africa, that he could no longer trust Libyan recruits if he were to lose a decisive battle in this upcoming conflict. These differences changed the nature of the war somewhat, because Dionysius had to divide his forces to fight on two coordinating fronts, southern Italy and eastern Sicily. Unfortunately, Diodorus Siculus doesn't provide us with the same anecdotes and wealth of sensational detail that he did in his depiction of the first three Sicilian wars. This leads me to believe that either his own sources are a bit sparse, or that this war was on a much smaller scale than the other three, which might indicate the slow decline of magnate authority in Carthage. He does give us two events that we can work with, though. The first is the Battle of Kabbalah, the first major engagement of the war. Now, we don't know much about this battle. The exact location is still a mystery, in fact, but we do know that A, it was a Syracusan victory, and B, Mago died in the fighting. So cross another maggoted off your list. We're nearing the very end of the dynasty. Mago, Mago II, was apparently replaced by his son, also named Mago, so we'll just call him Mago III, avoid needless confusion. I can't begin to imagine what must have been running through Mago III's head at his father's funeral. Not just grief, but the prospect of being yet another magnate to die in battle on this cursed island. His army was shaken, tired, and would soon have to face the wrath of Dionysius once more if Mago III didn't act soon. In a distinctly Carthaginian move, he sent diplomats to Dionysius and tried to sue for peace. Dionysius, who had spent so much time gathering this army, was not inclined to end hostilities now that he had more of an advantage over Carthage. He sent back ludicrous demands for a peace treaty, that he would reclaim all the formerly Greek cities Carthage had won in the Second Sicilian War, halving their territory on the island. He also wanted a massive war indemnity to fund this new army he had just created. But I don't seriously think he actually was pushing for peace, and neither does Mago III. So according to Diodorus Siculus, and please keep in mind that this is very likely anti-Punic propaganda because it plays into all those stereotypes about Phoenician treachery and Punic faith, well, according to Diodorus, Mago agrees to peace as a means of buying time, and asks Dionysius if he can have a week or so to coordinate with all the cities in question before the transfer of power. Dionysius apparently buys this ploy and agrees, which gives Mago III the window he needs to resupply and organize his army, as well as to pick out a spot for a pitched battle. He unexpectedly goes on the offensive, and traps Dionysius at a place called Cronium. The Battle of Cronium was a crushing defeat for Syracuse, though once again, we lack insight into Mago III's tactics. He did, however, pay Dionysus back in kind for the death of his father, because Dionysus' own brother, a Syracusan commander who had always been mentioned in the dispatches but who have neglected to mention for simplicity's sake, was slain in a heroic last stand. Mago III capitalized on his victory by chasing down the fleeing Syracusan army, inflicting 14,000 casualties according to my rather melodramatic sources. Dionysius, who had to remember that he was fighting a two-front war where one of his fronts had just collapsed, finally considered peace. The treaty that ended the Seven-Year War in 376 was laughably similar to most of the others we've seen. Carthage kept its dominance over three-fourths of the island, although they won some new eastern lands that had been colonies of Akragas and Salinas. A whole lot of war for a pretty consistent political outcome. You may be thinking, okay, so now this war is over. The Magonids and Dionysius have worn themselves out with decades of fighting. Sicily has undergone extensive reconstruction efforts that have led to new settlements and cultural blending. Finally, both of these states have a chance to return to internal prosperity, right? Not quite. See, Mago III is going to be the last magnate to ever lead the Carthaginian Empire. During the remainder of the 370s, two catastrophes hammer the final nail of the magnate coffin. We have yet another plague and a series of rebellions in Libya and Sardinia. Carthage really can't catch a break in this era, huh? Moreover, both of these disasters only exacerbated each other. The sudden death of thousands caused Libyan and Sardinian cities to lose faith in the central authority of the Adrim and the Sufit, while their secession from the empire made it harder for Carthage to direct vital food and tribute towards provinces in need. Although Mago III tried his best to put out all these fires, he was eventually usurped by the Adhrim and the Council of 104. For a little while, no one person held executive authority in the Republic, that is, until a guy named Hanno started making waves. Hanno was a Rab Mahanet who came from a wealthy Carthaginian clan, although he was not a magnate. And this was a perfect time to be a decisive, ambitious general like Hanno was, because there were rebellions to put down, territory to conquer, which of course meant there was glory to be won. Sure enough, he crushed both the revolt in Libya and Sardinia with the citizen and mercenary army, and then became the new political superstar of his day, which is why he is known to history as Hanno the Great. Being a respected general wasn't enough for Hanno, though. He wanted to claim the exalted position the magnates had once held for himself, and potentially start a political dynasty of his own. But it wasn't like he could just win the office of Sufid and wield absolute power over the empire anymore, like the magnates had done. The Adarim and the Council of 104 were exercising much more control over the state now, and the republic was actually living up to its name. So in a move that reminds me of something Malchus or Mago the First or even Dionysius would do, Hanno attempted to kill off all his political rivals that stood in the way. He did this at a banquet for his daughter's wedding that was attended by his Mizrahim. Now, I don't know if you remember from episode 4, but a Mizrahim was a unique Carthaginian social and political institution. It consisted of a group of citizens who dined together and hosted great parties or festivals frequently. Mizrahim were social clubs, religious organizations, or even political gatherings where affairs of the state could be discussed and alliances formed. Many were highly prestigious organizations with steep annual payments and strict qualifications. So Hanno belonged to one of these socio-political Mizrahim that must have been chock full of members of the adrim that would oppose his rise to power. And so, at the banquet, while he and the rest of the Mizrahim dined in private quarters, he had their cups poisoned. Luckily for these guys, though, one of Hanno's slaves had alerted them to the plot beforehand, and so they were able to avoid all the tainted items at the banquet. And to prevent another mass assassination by Hanno, they drafted legislation that limited how much a citizen could spend on wedding celebrations, which sounds to me like a hilarious middle finger to their would-be murder and a disappointment to Carthaginian brides everywhere. Still determined to seize power, though, Hanno next planned a coup d'etat disguised as a slave uprising. The goal was to incite it on the steps of the Adderim's meeting hall so that the slaves could easily just storm the building and indiscriminately butcher the politicians inside. But this plot too was leaked to the Adderim, and when they sent a military force to confront Hanno, he panicked, rallied a gigantic slave army behind him, and barricaded himself in a fortress inside the city. Eventually though, probably due to lack of supplies, He had to come out and surrender, and when he did, the furious Adurim had him publicly tortured. In a city square in front of thousands of people, Hanno had his eyes poked out, all his limbs broken, and was then crucified and left to suffer until his own body weight put him out of his misery. As he hung up there, his entire family was put to death alongside him. Remind me not to mess with the Carthaginian Republic. And speaking of tampering with these oligarchical institutions, the Adlerim that had survived Hanno's scheming knew that a single suffate would be too unstable for this magnet free Carthage. So from here on out, there would now be two suffates to check each other's executive authority. This didn't mean that influential political figures could no longer exert their will on the entire empire. They could, and they will, but it did make it significantly harder for some kid who was born into a dynasty to suddenly find themselves the only suffate, and thus an unstoppable force. So that spells out the downfall of the Magonids and the emergence of a new Republican era for Carthage. But I also promised that this would be Dionysius' final episode too. So what's he been up to in the years following the Fourth Sicilian War? pretty much more of the same, it turns out. In 368 BC, six years after the Fourth Sicilian War ended, Dionysius took advantage of Carthage's myriad distractions in North Africa, and without the slightest pretext for war, marched west. Despite having a minuscule army compared to the good old days, Diodorus only puts it at 30,000 infantry, Dionysius, with the element of surprise, rolled over Punic Sicily, taking Salinas and Eryx and pillaging the whole countryside. Next, Dionysius, not really having much to lose at this point, chose to push his luck, and so he headed over to the now thriving city of Lilibium and settled in for a siege. Now, this really caught the attention of Carthage, especially because Dionysius had just sent a formidable navy to blockade the Lilybaeum harbor, and remember, with gone, the port of Lilibium, was how all the tribute and resources from Carthage's Sicilian holdings made their way to the mother city. Carthage would be ruined if they lost all that food and all those trade goods and all that tribute. So Carthage launched a surprise attack of their own. Out of nowhere one day, the Syracusan fleet guarding the harbor of Lilibium spotted a host of ships cruising right for them. It was the Carthaginians at long last ready to put Dionysius in his place for well i've kind of lost track of how many times it's been sure enough the punic fleet thrashed Dionysius's ships and with his navy all but annihilated he had no choice but to make peace and retreat in 367 the treaty was signed and the borders were kept the same this utter defeat put an end to Dionysius's enmity with Carthage because he would die soon after he was replaced by a son of the same name, Dionysius II, who, unlike his father, is esteemed in the works of ancient and modern historians alike, mostly because of his deft navigation of foreign wars and dedication to the arts and culture of this city. But back to Dionysius I. There are conflicting reports about the nature of his demise. Some sources say that he lost a ferocious drinking game and succumbed to alcohol poisoning. Another source claims that after harshly mistreating his citizens with a set of new legislation, that he was overthrown in a coup and exiled to Greece. Yet another just says that he was murdered by a random assassin. Whatever the case, we can surmise one thing from this series. He must have died bitter and regretful at all of the losses, all of the rebellions, all of the refugees, and all of the territory that he had failed to win for Syracuse. He had held on to power for miraculously long and yet he had never seized the jewel of the mediterranean rather dionysius saw his own fair share of trouble in this veritable paradise and after three of these episodes i imagine you might have as well if you have well don't worry we'll get past all this soon we have one more episode before we scale over the insurmountable time span of these seven Sicilian wars. Two more Syracusan enemies would deign to challenge Carthaginian hegemony. Their names were Timoleon and Agathocles, and I will tell you all about them next time on Wonders of History.